Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Joining our conversation now is Rick Reeder, CIO of Global Fixed Income at BlackRock. And you're getting into the ETF game yourself as well, Rick. So we do want to talk about that. But let me first ask you about the overriding trend that Eric was just outlining. We don't have this avalanche into fixed income ETFs um, that we've been seeing for pretty much the entire year so far. Why do you think that is? So I think that's a couple of things. The, uh, the well, the primary one being the Treasury's issuing about 200 uh, was it 299 billion bills a week, gross about uh, 70 billion net at five and a half percent. So you think about it, you functionally can sit in cash at five and a half, you know, or you go to the long end of the yield curve and get less than four, and you got to take you know very long interest rate, very long duration, very long interest rate sensitivity. I mean, these cash levels are uh, are pretty high and so people say gosh I'll take that we'll talk about you know can you get yield in fixed income you can but boy you know if you if you carry at five and a half or you build a portfolio today that gets you some income and then go in a, you know there, there's a good chunk of the equity market that's below the average multiple so you know so if you're filling out your investment portfolio card today and you say gosh what am I going to do uh, gosh I'll carry high and then I'll buy some equities that have some upside and that, that works pretty well. And I do love that you talk about equities, even as a bond guy, but I want to stick to the bonds <laughs> right now, because if you look at the bond market in ETFs broken down by maturity, it caught my eye that for the past two months, you've seen a lot of money come out of short duration funds. So those in maturing in a year to three years, but then you take a look at ultra short and it's still holding on to all of those assets that it's taken in so far this year. What is it about the short space that people are getting out of right now? So, so first of all, you know, you've got an inverted curve, and today, functionally sitting in cash or cash, like I know, I've, I've, I think I said it on the show we did the other day, that you can own commercial paper, that six-month, nine-month commercial paper, and clip over six yield, which is pretty incredible. As you think about, if you're, gosh, I could do that, maybe I'll own parts of the high yield market and get, or parts of EM and get higher numbers, eight, nine, ten, and so to sit in someone with an inverted curve, to sit in some of these areas that are not paying you a lot doesn't make a doesn't make a lot of sense. So uh, so I'm sure there's some of the di that dynamic at play today. I want to say I mean you look at so I got no, so, well, well Rick I want to you mentioned the inverted curve and I've just been kind of obsessing over this um, for the last few hours and of course this year we've all been watching that <laughs> now. Uh, the reason I've been thinking about it, Ed Yardeni um, thinks he has an explanation for the incredible inversion we've seen. I mean, three months, 10 year, over 100 basis point, 150 basis points, right? Um, and everyone's saying, does, does that mean a recession's coming? Or what, what is it signaling? Because the economy, the real economy data that we have looks very good. So Yardeni says, maybe the inversion of the yield curve just means that inflation is coming down at a rapid pace and not necessarily flagging a recession as it has the last you know, seven times. What's your take on that debate? So I, I think the inversion of the yield curve is a good indicator of recession, but it's been wrong. I think it's like it predicted nine of the last three recessions. I, I, I don't think it's a great. I don't think it is a great indicator. And you think about what's happening today. 
You used to have an economy that was very interest rate sensitive. The economy today is not interest rate sensitive. The companies that borrow for CapEx, or some, sorry, the companies that spend on CapEx, that you think about the big tech companies that are spending on AI, or the, the Googles, Microsoft, the Apples, they don't really borrow, they use free cash flow. People have already locked in their mortgages at three, three and a half. So you don't have interest rate sensitivity there. The, the, the economy is just not, and you think about all the hiring in the economy, healthcare, education, these are not interest sensitive dynamics. So what happens is the Fed lifts the front end of the yield curve up and you don't create that much of, of an impact. But like you say, inflation is coming down. So you create this inversion in an economy that's actually resistant to or less sensitive to interest rate hikes. And so it's not, I would argue, it's not a good indicator at, at at all. Speaking of indicators, I read an interview with you uh, from a couple of weeks ago. You talked about you'd pay a lot less attention to surveys, where it's people's opinions about what's going to happen. You'd much rather read earnings reports. And so we have a lot of earnings uh, coming up. I'm just curious what you're looking for uh, in the next couple of weeks there. Yeah, I mean, I, by the way, I find some of these surveys where they poll 500 people, they're similar <laughs> to election polls. Like, people talk about what they feel like, and then actually, they could be in a bad mood, but they keep spending. <laughs> so I, I don't find these surveys terribly robust. And then it just swings like everything else with some of them. What am I looking for? I'm looking for a top line. I'm looking for what are revenues on a top line basis in an economy that's operating pretty well. But I'm also looking at there's real dispersion. In, uh, in some of these companies today. So you look at some of the retailers, apparel, electronics, furniture that have been struggling a bit, but gosh, and then you look at travel, it's operating really, really well. The airlines, the cruise lines, the hotels. So I'm looking at dispersion. And then, quite frankly, you know, one of the things that around you know, tech mm -hmm. drives so much today is how what's happening with search, what's happening with advertising spend, and those are gonna be, those are gonna be pretty, uh, pretty important numbers to look at today. But, I, but I'm pretty keyed in on A, top line revenue, mm -hmm. And are companies able to keep their margins at a reasonably stable level given some of the input costs have gone up? Well, Rick, it's going to be a really interesting week for you because I believe we have 165 companies in the S&P 500 reporting this week. We don't have too much time with you before the break. You're sticking with us. But before we go to commercial, I do want to ask about your thoughts on high-yield credit because it's not lost on me that junk has been really performing well this year. Then you take a look at the flows. You've had nearly $6 billion leave from junk ETFs, whereas fixed-income ETFs overall have taken in over $100 billion. Why does no one want to buy into this junk rally? So a couple of things. One, I mean, you can get yield in a, in a bunch of other places. We talked about EM. We talked about some of the quality yields you can get that are, that are pretty attractive today. And, you know, the, quite frankly, part of high yield today, if you're doing it on a, in a passive way, Half the index trades at tighter than 300 spread and half trades above 800. So you're getting a lot of tight stuff and you're getting a lot of what I would argue companies that are under some stress. Part of why you know we're doing this in our ETF is being selective around the names that are actually paying you for the risk. That makes a lot of sense. And then the other side of it is if you're using beta in your portfolio, equities are doing a whole lot for you in terms of using that beta bucket. If you can get income in other ways, in safer ways, then, you know, that's what I was saying. If you fill out your investment portfolio card, a lot of safe carry and then get the beta that's really working for you is, uh, has, has made a ton of sense. Uh, Rick, it doesn't feel like you're being paid to take uh, credit risk here. You're just buying the yield curve. What do you think about that, that idea? So... I mean, listen, I mean, part of the argument against high yield this, this year has been the spread's not interesting at all. And, um, but, 
you can create, I mean, there are, there are a bunch of parts of the fixed income market that actually you are getting paid for. There are parts of credit. By the way, European high yield, if you're a dollar investor, you swap it back to dollars and you get paid well into the nines for getting that. That, that strikes me as fair. We talk about parts of EM where, where you're taking risk in Mexico, sovereign risk in Mexico, that you're getting paid low double digits, local rates. And the securitization market is really interesting. CLO market, you buy AAA CLOs, not taking a lot of credit risk. Uh, the non-agency mortgage market is interesting today uh, for the same reason. I mean, the residential mortgage market's in good shape. So, listen, if you said, you know, what do you think of high yield or high grade spreads if you're just buying that current spread? Yeah, I mean, it's a fair argument. It's not that, not certainly relative to history, it's not that cheap. Most of the yield you're getting is coming through the risk-free rate. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, that's part of the idea of, like, you can, you can hide in parts of the front end of the yield curve and get a lot of carry. Well, specifically... You know, by, by the way, I mean... No, I was going to say one thing on the ETF. We're yeah. running a duration. You know, you can create a seven. You know, the, the yield we're running is about a seven with an interest where the duration or interest rate sensitivity. That's about two. Mm -hmm. And so that that pretty appealing today in an environment where uh, where you know, do you want to take a lot of a lot of rate risk out the curve? Well, Rick, you mentioned Mexico, and I want to talk international because I'm looking at the ETF bank right now, and I see that 22% of the fund is in non-U.S. credit. So when you think about really the global fixed income market right now, where is most of the opportunity? Are you going to find that in U.S. bonds, or how much are you looking to overseas relative to where you usually tilt? So, I mean, listen, the U.S. is always, I mean, in fixed income, it's pretty hard not to have the U.S. as a core part of your portfolio, particularly when you've got these yields. I mean, for you, you know, the front end of the yield curve, real rates are over 300 basis points. The average, I think, over the last 10 years is negative 50, negative 60. So it's pretty hard not to have a core part of your portfolio in the U.S. But European credit, European IG, investment grade credit, European high yield, swap back to dollars. You can buy a lot of reasonable companies without going far out the yield curve at an awful lot of yield, particularly as a dollar investor. And then the other one being EM, we talked about Mexico, Brazil, the rates market in Brazil, Colombia. There are, um, you know, you're getting paid a, a uh, you know, local rates. As long as you're willing to take some currency risk in EM, <clears throat> It's pretty, they're pretty darn attractive. And you know, the currencies have actually not only not hurt you from a hedging point, they've actually been a real help as you know, you've got money flowing into Mexico as a big winner in the deglobalization dynamic. Same in the same currency in Brazil doing really well. And just real quick, uh, this ETF is interesting to me because it does take a lot of risk relative to other active fixed income ETFs, which typically benchmark against the ag. You're benchmarked against the universal, which is actually a little harder to beat, in my opinion. How far out there are you t uh, purposely going? Are you trying to add a lot of active share? So this is a complement to, say, the ag exposure that a lot of people have? A hundred percent. I mean, you know, the idea around this is to create, there's a lot of investment that goes into HYG, into the traditional passive um, JNK, traditional passive uh, fixed income ETFs, which by the way are great ways to get exposure into those. What we're trying to do is create a more yield, but be really active around getting where your exposure is coming from, being tactical about you know, when it makes sense to own agency mortgages versus owning uh, emerging markets, et cetera. So the idea being, can we, can we hold a higher yield mm -hmm. and then be aggressive about moving it around to where we think the best opportunity presents itself? You know, there, there are times where the new issue market presents opportunity. Now in the securitization market, as, you know, as well Chronicle banks are selling assets. There's some assets that are that are that are trading at a very reasonable levels. All right, Rick, we gotta leave it there, but come back soon. This was great. That, was that is Rick Reader of BlackRock <laughs> talking about B I N C. The countdown has begun. 
This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.